0: Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart.
1: Chip, how are you today? Wonderful, Jim. How are you? Good to meet you uh, here on your podcast. (laughs) It's a pleasure. Thanks for uh, uh, coming on.
0: Uh, You've had an interesting career and some, have done some very interesting things. And uh, one of the things I think that you're most known for is probably the creation of the American Renewable Energy Day. And I'd sort of like to go a little backward in time and ask you how you got involved in renewable energy and your concern, if you will, about the planet.
1: Right. Well, that's a deep question. Uh, and uh, that goes back to probably my childhood when I um, had the good fortune of being raised without a um, a formal religion. Uh, My father was Jewish but not practicing, and my mother was Christian, both um, Catholic and Protestant, and so we weren't raised in a church setting. And so by the time I got to be about 12, 13 You know, the what, where, when, who, how questions started to arise. And a book fell into my lap called Black Elk Speaks, and it spoke to me. Uh, This is the Lakota um, mystic, if you will, uh, one of the great classic anthropological books um, written by a Lakota Indian who was uh, born in the 1850s. His uncle was a crazy horse, and he lived through the transition from the natural expression to the modern forced uh world of uh of european americans that colonized the uh, continent at, at, at any rate um that built in some sensibilities as a teenager that then translated out later on in life um when i began working with the lakota tribe um in 2003 i was i'm a filmmaker and i was hired to record the first utility scale wind turbine to be owned by a Native American tribe. That was the Rosebud turbine up in Rosebud, South Dakota. And in the doing, I learned that uh, renewable energy is very important to our biosphere. And I was also interested in economic and social justice for some of the poorest people in in the world and and, and live right here, you know, the fourth world and the first world right here in the United States of America. And so that began a journey um that ended up producing the first R day summit uh well the first R day in 2004 it actually became actualized as a summit when ted turner showed up in 2008 uh he came back five times he brought t boone pickens with him so we had both right and left you know what we like to say at R day is that um you know while ted turner might be to the left of of John Lennon and T. Boone Pickens to the right of Attila the Hun. You know, they both came together in the middle and met on the green carpet of our day. You know, red meets blue on the green, where we began to talk about our commonality and our sameness. And so uh, the last time Ted was here in 2014, he brought President Carter with him. So that began our, our, our presidential expression because the next year we had Kevin Rudd, who was the former prime minister of Australia, and then after that, the president of Iceland uh, 14, 15, 16. And so we've had a very, you know, very good luck in terms of convening at the highest level of, um, the heads of, um, industry, billionaire philanthropists, but also, uh, people like James Cameron showed up when avatar was in the movie theaters. Uh, you know, we've had a good expression from Hollywood. Um, and so it's cross sector dialogue that we've been convening on this most serious of all existential issues in my view which is the uh, packing of the atmosphere with the uh, approximately 3 trillion tons of anthropogenically created and forced CO2 and other greenhouse gases that are in fact now creating these uh, cascading uh, tipping points and feedback loops that are um, seriously impacting uh, the natural environment, the forest fires, the floods, the droughts, um, et cetera, acidifying the ocean, crashing the coral reefs, et cetera. And so, you know, in a nutshell, that's kind of where I'm coming from pretty much for this entire century, you know, beginning. (laughs) Uh, Well,
0: as you well know, I mean, uh, we have created an existential crisis, which is not only affecting you and I, uh, but that being said, um, the millennials and the Gen Zers and Uh, many of them feel they have no future. It's fascinating though, uh, everyone seems to be aware of this. Uh, There seems to be an opinion by a subset of people that this is manufactured, that the earth goes through these different changes and there's nothing that needs to be done. And then of course, uh, many who say that we've already crossed several planetary boundaries and uh, we need to do something immediately. Two questions. One is, and maybe <laughs> it's it's a uh, a question that's uh, hard to even answer or explain. But that question is: uh, Why is it that uh, we have this fast disparity uh, between uh, these different uh, visions, if you will? And. Uh, Two is how do we get out of it? And obviously, I know that's not a simple question. I'm not trying to put you on a spot, but uh, I just want to understand your views on those two aspects.
1: Well, let's start with the last one, which is how we get out of it. Um, that's why we started the American Renewable Energy Institute, because um, I'm a believer in science and I believe that science and physics don't really care whether you believe in them or not. They just exist. And so the fact of the matter is that burning this massive amount of coal, oil, and gas uh, has produced um, the effects that we're now seeing. Um, I would remind you and your listeners that uh, the two hockey stick graphs that track each other going up would be the amount of oil, coal, and gas that we've taken out of the Mother Earth and and, uh, refined and burnt into the atmosphere for short-term gain, meaning power, both money and energy, and then dump the waste product into the, um, uh, the troposphere, the atmosphere, which is actually burning down the biosphere, has uh, also been driving the exponential um, population of the planet. Because when we started burning and extracting in earnest around 1915, we were approximately 2 billion people on planet Earth. Well, that's just a little over 100 years ago. Now we're 8 eight. They tell us that 12 years ago we were seven. That's how quickly, that's what exponential expansion looks like in the human population, but it also is having a similar effect in the atmosphere. I would also remind uh, us all that what is in fact oil, coal, and gas is all of the old life. It's the dinosaurs, it's the phytoplankton in the ocean, it's the trees, it's all the organic matter, and it's... Our grandparents it's what we become after we die eventually and so to take the old life out of mother earth that's nicely sequestered and then um you know burn it and and quickly replace the the, the leftover pollution that then is stealing the future of life to come i mean i think that's the real existential question that we're that we're that we're facing here so in terms of what fixes it I think it's not only a shift in 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 energy you know like in other words we've got to go from energy that hurts us to energy that helps us or as um, Bobby Kennedy once said before he was running for president (laughs) this uh, this is Bobby Kennedy senior of course right but I think he got this from his dad and, and kind of it's kind of like let's get our energy um, from heaven above and not hell below. You know, that's a nice Christian way of explaining the situation, I suppose. Um, but it's really, um, it reflects the fact that we could have all the energy that we need from the sun and the wind and from the geothermal resources within the earth, uh, as well as um, energy efficiency is at the top of the uh, of, of the list because we're such a, uh, a wasteful um society of humans, uh, in terms of how we technically do this. And I apologize. I forgot the first question at this point. So, uh, uh, it's okay. Uh, listen, I do
0: the same thing. Uh, that question was actually, why is there such disparity, uh, between opinions? If you want to say the left and the right. Now, I think that, uh, uh, some of them are self-evident perhaps, but, uh, uh, it always fascinates me how you have the same amount of data, uh, and I think you would agree that there's absolutely no question uh, based on, as you said, science, uh, of what we're doing here. Why is there so much resistance to science by some people, which even to the point where it threatens their lives?
1: Well, at this point, uh, James, I would have to quote Upton Sinclair, and I'm going to really, you know, butcher this this quote, but it's along the lines of, you know, if, if a man's salary is tied to him not understanding something, then it's really difficult to get him to understand that thing. And so um, another way of saying that is that in a world that's based on capitalism that's predicated on unlimited, unending resources, meaning that there's always going to be, you know, fish in the sea and timber in the woods and oil in the ground to be exploited and that there's always going to be more consumers to consume. Well, it's a false premise, uh, in my view. My colleagues, uh, Amory Levins and Paul Hawken and Hunter Levins wrote a book at the end of the last century, in 1999, it came out, called Natural Capitalism, which really delved into this Uh, issue quite deeply and that it's basically you know capitalism is 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 based on a false premise that we're you know we're we're living in an infinite world of resources and an expanding economy ever expanding economy with the quarterly reports and so forth and you know exactly what I'm talking about in terms of you know Wall Street and uh, how the SEC is built and so forth and so uh you know so so there that's what I would say in terms of Um, you know what brought us to this point. So, my question to you is, you know, what brings us out of this point into, you know, a sustainable world?
0: Well, uh, that was what I asked you, but now you're reflecting it back on me. Uh, I think uh, uh, we're in a bind here, and uh, uh, either there has to be some coming together of these uh, polar opposite opinions and some compromises, uh, I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, the nature of capitalism is predicated on this uh, false false premise of uh, ever increasing or expanding economy, which just makes no logical sense. I think the other problem is that, as you mentioned earlier, we're very wasteful. We create products that uh, cannot be fixed, so they have to be thrown away, uh, we keep promoting a premise that uh, everyone should embrace ever-expanding technology um, and that there should be a ever-increasing uh, um, lifestyle, all of these to the detriment of the planet. As an example, as you well know, I mean, the United States, what, consumes about 25% of the world's resources with uh, only 350 million out of the 8 billion people. I mean, this is frankly an outrage. Yet, the problem, of course, is when people have privilege, if you suggest limiting that privilege or getting rid of the privilege, they feel like they're being oppressed, uh, which creates another narrative. Now, it's also interesting that while we consume all of these things in the United States, we have a population of which uh, the vast majority of people have less than $400 in disposable income, and we have this ever-increasing income inequality, which benefits a very, very small uh, group of people, uh, and to the detriment of a very large percentage of people. I think the other aspect is that uh, we have, this, uh, world economic forum, uh, yet who gets to attend, uh, the people in power, the people who control the money and the, and the wealthiest people in the world. And they have a perception that they have a right to determine, uh, how the rest of the world responds. And again, it gets back to the same premise. The, um, the subset of people, if you ever mention uh, getting rid of their privilege or limiting their privileges, then, of course, uh, they feel oppressed and uh, uh, that that shouldn't happen. You know, there's an interesting quote by Tolstoy, and I'll, I'll similarly destroy my quote, <laughs> but, but it says, there's a monkey on your back choking you, uh, or I should say, there's a man on your back choking you. He acknowledges he's on your back choking you, but at no time does he ever offer to get off your back and stop choking you. And I think that's what uh, we're seeing today. Uh, but we ultimately have to face this. And I think this is part of the problem is that something's got to give, and not only in regard to the climate, but frankly, in in regard to humanity, because when the extractive process, which is the nature of capitalism, gets so excessive, uh, you will have an event similar to the French Revolution. And I would think if these individuals look at this logically, that they would understand it's in their best interest to do what's right and not to continually want
1: well i you know i concur obviously look i would point out that there's 4000 uh billionaires on the planet and there's 8 billion other people and that the world operates on an $80 trillion annual GDP, 193 countries all in. The U.S. is the biggest economy in the world, and uh, China's number two. But those two countries together literally control half of the world's GDP. Everybody else is subservient to that. And that $80 trillion GDP is based on the extraction and burning of fossil fuel to run the engine. So it's no wonder that we're right where we are, in fact. And I would posit that war, the military-industrial complex, is big oil and big weapons together in this uh, in this way. So it really is a um, it's a bit of a conundrum. And and in fact, I think that we don't. We not only need to change our energy systems, and we talk about this at the R Day. You know, we do have this element in in it. It's a cross sector dialogue. Remember uh, that we need to also change our, our shift our consciousness and how we see ourselves as human beings uh, on this water planet. That's you know tilted on its axis and spinning, and you know chasing around the sun, which is in fact chasing. You know, the sun goes around its center point one time every 250 million years now put that in your pipe and smoke it okay you know that means that the sun has made i think approximately 13 turns since its creation by they tell us they think the sun was created uh what you know i i can't remember the earth is 4.5 billion but whatever anyway the numbers get pretty big pretty big but but the point i guess i'm trying to make is that um you know, I don't think that human beings are, are cognizant of the true nature of our existence. And that's one of the reasons why we focus so heavily on the indigenous um, element, um, wisdom, at the day. because, uh, you know, I feel very strongly that uh, the indigenous people, and there's about 800 million of them around the planet Earth, you know, and it's there. Uh, reserves it's their reservations it's their traditional territories that are the de facto firewall between humanity and the remaining biosphere you know when eo wilson says half earth is needed to maintain you know a healthy uh well to just maintain life um that's what he's talking about and and so i think that the indigenous people of the planet uh, they remember the original instructions much more clearly than than the than than the rest and and I think that that's one of the reasons why you're seeing a lot of emphasis being placed there now you know not only in our conference but in many different you know uh, places around the planet you know we, we need to get back to the balance and that's not only the balance between you know, energy and resources but also the balance between you know uh people you know males and females and so forth uh,
0: no i think you're right I, I recently had an indigenous mayan woman uh, on the podcast named urea Selidwin and we had a long conversation uh about uh, the reality that man thrives uh when he's connected to nature and that's how he evolved as a species and the further we get away from that uh, the further it harms us, and we forget uh, our place in the natural world. And uh, as a result, we suffer. And secondary to that, then nature suffers itself. What's disconcerting is, though, how far do we have to get before there's a global uh, collapse of the uh, ocean uh, and a variety of different species. I'm sure you're aware of the fact that there are a number of, an ever-growing number of species that are going to soon be extinct. And once uh, there's collapse of the oceans,
1: we're going to be in very big trouble. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. The balance is being threatened on, on all levels. And um, it's, uh, you know, we're hitting that critical Tipping point, but I want to send a message um, of hope and um, inspiration here because I think that, you know, one of the... Re- well, well, first of all, when you mentioned earlier in the podcast that that the youth are becoming very apathetic, there's very there's increasing rates of teen suicide, not only in tribal nations, which, by the way, is the highest in the world, um, but um, it's also... Uh, inherent uh, within the population that I believe the packing of the atmosphere with this carbon is creating a new form of mental illness. And, you know, we're known as Homo sapiens, right? You know, like the wise ape that knows that it knows or something like that, I guess, loosely interpreted. But that uh, the actual physical effect of these greenhouse gases, beyond the airborne particulates, you know, beyond when the forest fires turned New York City black for a day or two last summer, and you know, you can't even see the Brooklyn Bridge, right? Beyond that, it's the fact that we are we have raised the carbon concentration from 280 300 where it's been for a million years up to now 420 to i don't know 480 depending on where you're measuring um you know let's remember that we're dumping 60 billion tons per year on top of the three trillion plus that's already up there so that's you know you can only pack the atmosphere so much And then the feedback loops become you know it's it's our, our atmosphere, our biosphere—it's only a very narrow band, you know, that you can see uh, when you take those pictures of the Earth from outer space, and you see that blue, you know, aura surrounding the planet. That's where all life exists. That's where all life that's ever been on this planet, from the beginning of time, in terms of how we measure that, you know, uh, that's where it all has occurred in that little thin, you know, three-four mile strip. And um, that's called the atmosphere, and the troposphere. You know, um, you get up to the stratosphere, you can't live up there. You know, <laughs> life doesn't exist there. So, and and then outer space and so forth. So anyway, I think that um, to, to acknowledge that life itself on the water planet, which is very rare, you know, we know that water probably exists in the vastness of the universe, but it's very rare. We don't see it around here in our in very much at least not in our solar system and so you know we've got to take care of this this wondrous place and we're not doing a very good job of that but um back to you know the practicality of transition that's being um uh suggested by the biden administration through the ira bill uh through the money that's on the table for these hydrogen hubs that were just announced around the country, uh, for the, um, uh, uh, the other, the other things that they're suggesting, you know, direct air capture, uh, carbon capture and sequestration. We're finding out that that's pretty much pie in the sky stuff. It doesn't really work. Uh, it's a nice idea. Kind of like what Gandhi said about Western civilization, you know, <laughs> but, um, but maybe not so much in practical uh, reality. Um, And so I think that there's a big movement back to the land that really has to do with regeneration of uh, agricultural practices, regeneration of the soil, uh, the restoration of the soil through um, uh, the organic growings of food, uh, also um, building healthy communities within um, microgrid systems, becoming self-reliant within community. And this goes Back to the tribal understandings of how um, communities can, you know, be reliant on on one another because you know the human race has separated itself by, I think eighty percent of humanity lives in these cities, right? The mega cities, and that uh, you know we have basically separated ourselves from each other in these little cubicles called apartments, you know, <laughs> and um, you know our uh, our interactions are kind of determined by our our tribe, right? And um, and so now, you know, it's, it looks like it's there's, there's, in order for us to really, um, you know, move into the next phase of, of human evolution, we're going to have to uh, remember what community is all about. And that includes in the urban environment as well. Well, in some ways, it's like
0: de-evolving in the sense that we have to go back to those methods that have traditionally worked over thousands of years, to recognize uh the value of nature and live within harmony uh with nature and uh, otherwise as you said we're talking about mental illness you're absolutely correct there's ever-growing uh mental illness especially among the youth and a great part of this has uh is uh due to uh this separation and this acknowledgement that, while well, on the one hand, you could argue that uh, uh, living in cities, et cetera, uh, supports humanity and provides for uh, ever-increasing growth. But that being said, at what cost? You mentioned consciousness. Um, if you look at uh, Native American or other indigenous traditions, uh, they were absolutely corrected uh, or connected to nature and got not only solace, but wisdom, growth, connection, uh, which sustained them and the planet. And we're so separated from this. I think one of the great things is, though, that um, we're starting to recognize that and hopefully embrace that. And there are a lot of uh, indigenous peoples that are coming together to not only promote their own traditions, but recognize interconnectedness of all of these traditions. You mentioned the reality that uh, suicide and drug and alcohol abuse are endemic within a lot of uh, these tribal cultures. And of course, part of the problem is the um, colonization and complete lack of regard for these uh, traditions with a uh, desire actually to eliminate them, to put in their place, uh, European views of how one should live. And of course, if your, uh, dignity is stro- destroyed by, uh, uh destroying, uh, your culture, uh, your language, uh, then you have nothing to live for, for a lot of these people, especially in regard to the fact that these uh, colonists typically uh take the best land and then continue to push these uh tribes into the worst land. And as soon as, as an example, let's say oil is found, then they push them off of that and it's take, 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 take. And uh uh and you know, you can certainly understand why these um indigenous cultures are uh suffering so much. But again, I, I am optimistic that there is a recognition of this reality, and hopefully, a turning away
1: from um, the separation from nature. Well, it is—it's really the bottom line, isn't it? It's—it's it's the separation from nature, and you know, um, you know, one of the things we we just did our day, and the third day we honored Indigenous Day, which was the uh, formerly known as um, you know. Colonialist day, I guess, or whatever that guy's name was. (laughs) But anyway, um, the point I'm making or trying to make or get to here is that we also um, put a spotlight on women and and women's leadership. And that really goes to the great uh, imbalance between, you know, male and female uh, energies, which kind of really tracks back, in my view, I mean this goes back 6,000 years. I mean, in in our history where, you know, the Old Testament states that it's a male God, a wrathful God, you know, heaven and hell up or down. And, uh, you know, woman got us kicked out of the Garden of Eden and, and, um, you know, talked to that snake and, you know, ate that apple and all that business and comes out of the male's rib. I mean, come on. So, you know, we're talking about something here where uh, that, yeah, I mean, the males of the species are physically stronger, you know, in the caveman days, we went out, and, you know, got the brontosaurus and dragged it back home, just like we learned in Fred Flintstone when we were kids, you know, but the reality is that, um, you know, men and women are, uh, you know, man brings half and woman brings half and together we make the whole, okay, and there's equality of value here. And I think that really, when we talk about the planet, which is, you know, the mother you know, mother nature. The ocean is referred to as she. We name all of our ships she, female, right? Feminine, receptive. You know, the sun, you know, gives us the rays that creates photosynthesis. And so, you know, we have to we have to find the balance. We have to really search and, and find the balance. And really I, I connect that directly to renewable energy myself. I think it's it's inherent within the sun and the wind that we can find our you know, equilibrium again, and that we need to choose that. Uh, let me just comment on
0: um, uh, actually the ration of cattle as an example in terms of uh, destruction of the environment. How significant is that?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, one-fifth of all greenhouse gases we know come from how we do uh, animal uh, and agriculture, but particularly these um, uh, these feedlots, Um And industrial farming and industrial farming. uh, It's it's quite a big chunk of the um, uh, the greenhouse gas uh, throughput. And uh, as my colleague, Luis Ahoyos, the Oscar winning director of The Cove, who was with us last weekend um, and also, you know, created the movie called Racing Extinction, of which I was one of the producers. uh, He he really focuses a lot on um, on really changing our diets. You know, the best way you can impact uh, and change the, uh, the situation is, is to change your diet. You'll become healthier, and, um, and you're going to help the planet, you know, by becoming a vegan or at least, you know, becoming, you know, uh, choosing vegetarian over, um, over meat. So, you know, that's a really strong, there's a strong case to be made there.
0: Well, certainly uh, dramatically cutting down on uh, meat consumption, if not completely, But I think that's exactly right. And I just wanted to point that out because some people think it's all related to fossil fuels, uh, but uh, it's also related to uh, different types of agriculture and uh, uh, the industrialization of many of these practices, uh, uh, as an example, as we were talking about uh, cattle. I think people forget that. And again, it's a further separation from nature where you're uh, growing massive amounts of livestock in very uh, small amounts of land. And uh, it has, uh, again, a huge negative impact. What, uh, in terms of renewable energy, do you see any dramatic breaks in the sense of, we talked about exponential, uh, exponentially increasing uh, uh, the amount of energy that can be created by renewable resources. As I understand it, uh, there's been some interesting advances in solar panels. Uh, Any other areas that we can see a promising
1: future? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, uh, I mean, we like to, so in the 2000s, when the Bush administration came in, And uh, Dick Cheney greenlit um, the massive uh, development of of natural gas. You know, we we punched in something like 300,000 new wells between uh, the Pizance Basin in Colorado where I live, the Marcellus Shale up in Pennsylvania, other places uh, through fracking. You know, this was the big evolution. And it turns out that because of fugitive emissions at wellhead and the fact that each one of these uh, wells requires somewhere on the magnitude of five million gallons of water to do this fracking, so it's very water intensive. And in the, in the desert southwest where I live, you know that's that's a radical um, use of, of water. Um, that's produced water; it's no longer usable. You can't just take it and put it on the crops. You know. Um, anyway, we were told that natural gas was the bridge between fossil fuels and renewable energy. And we were told that by some pretty respectable folks that had really been thinking about it a long time. And, but we found out that that was a bridge to nowhere, essentially, okay? And that there might be actually a net increase of greenhouse gases from from this um, uh, methane that we were, we were getting out of the ground. I mean, we know that that's true. And that's one of the reasons why the feedback loops are accelerating because methane is 20 times more potent than, uh, than CO2 as a greenhouse gas. But now I like to think that uh, and, and, and state that uh, renewable energy is the bridge between fossil fuels and hydrogen, and that hydrogen is going to become the carrier of the clean energies. Now hydrogen is also a fossil fuel, let's not forget about that, except for when it's not. And it's not a fossil fuel, when it's derived through the green hydrogen technologies, which means electrolysis, where you split H2O, you know, water, you split off the hydrogen, and all you have left is water. Right now, the hydrogen industry is is um, is driven by the uh, the fossil fuel companies in the reformation of uh, of meth of methane and stripping it um, from from the methane, and then, you know, if it's black uh hydrogen or brown then it's you're just dumping the greenhouse gases if it's blue then you're capturing it but then there you know you have to prove up are you actually doing that are you actually sequestering that and there's a whole myriad of other colors so we can get into in terms of the hydrogen but but it's a lot of hope for that why do you think uh hydrogen though has not taken
0: off you know i i mean we look at electric cars as an example which People like to promote that uh, it's much better than use of fossil fuels. But if you look, as an example, how much increase in uh, tire residual that goes into the plant in terms of microplastics, or if you look at the cost of mining for these uh, different uh, minerals necessary to create batteries and uh, the necessity to dispose of them, how does that compare to, let's say, use of nitrogen fuel for automobiles? And uh, why hasn't that been looked into a bit
1: more? Uh, you mean hydrogen for autos? Well, yeah. I mean, because it's, there's so much, it's so energy intensive to, I mean, it takes a massive amount of, of electricity to use these giant electrolyzers to split water or hope the hope is seawater. Well, we, you know, right. there's a lot, lot more ocean water than there is fresh water. And if we could create our hydrogen from offshore, these gigantic, you know, offshore wind units uh, with these uh, electrolyzers. I mean, it's looking very hopeful. You know, we have the technology. It's a matter of can we deploy it at scale? Um, but again, it has to do with energy. OK, so what? so that goes to the markets of, of capitalistic, you know, planet, right? And so what what's the cost of energy? Now, solar and wind have brought the cost of energy way down. From when I started in 2004, as an example, there was 2,500 megawatts of installed wind, utility wind energy in the United States. Today, there's well over 200,000, and it constitutes the fastest growth sector of, uh, of the utility scale electricity business, I mean, of any energy, including nuclear or hydro or anything. I mean, wind owns that. Now, now, solar has come along around 2015. China brought the cost way down. But remember, you know, as people remind me all the time, there's lots and lots of rare earth elements and toxic materials that go into the manufacturing of the wind turbines, the blades, the nacelles, the solar panels, you know, the silicon, you know, the rare earth elements that have to be procured, you know, usually with child slave labor in the Congo to get the cobalt to put in the batteries for the Teslas. I mean, it's, it's really quite extensive and we have to look at every single thing, every step of the way, with the hope being that eventually we do have a closed system where the, the energy, uh, the waste of one project product becomes the energy input of the other. And we go around the circle with no emissions whatsoever. And and we think that we can do that, but that in the meantime, um, you know, it's it's we're in this the middle of this great um, you know energy transition and I think transformation. Quite honestly, um, but there's a lot of resistance. Let's face it. I mean, you know, the the seven sisters, right? The the big seven oil companies. They don't really like uh, you know having their profit centers you know reduced. And and by the way, when COVID kicked in, and You know, the human race was forced into the corner with its like dunce hat on, the way I look at it, you know, and nobody could drive around because we were all afraid of dying if we stuck our nose out the door and saw our neighbor, you know. But what happened as a result of that? It was amazing, wasn't it? I mean, look at like in L.A., you know, you could roll (laughs) a bowling ball down the 405 and, you know, (laughs) there wasn't a car in sight. And all of a sudden, you know, the skies cleared and you could see the mountains. And the fish started jumping out of the water, and the dolphins came up the river. All over the world this happened, you know? And all we did was stop the burning for like a brief three months. Imagine if we did that for three years or, or even one year. I mean, it was amazing. The, 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 the recovery, the regenerative capacity of the planet immediately just kicked in. You know, just, The Earth just went, you know, took a big breath, you know, because we had stopped the burning just for that brief period of time. And I really think it's important for us to remember that, you know, that that we have the capacity to, to make the changes and that the Earth is going to support us. Nature will support us if we stop hammering every single place, you know, stop cutting down incessantly the Amazon rainforest, stop cutting down the temporal forests around the planet, you know, stop taking every last fish out of the sea with these industrial operations, you know, that, that pull seven tons, you know, a day or whatever out of the ocean. I mean, it's insane, you know, and thinking that 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 that's going to in some way be sustainable. And again, that that goes to the earlier conversation uh, here where we were talking about, you know, uh, capitalism and the the unending growth that that's that's braced on. So um, this conversation is being had at the United Nations at the COP, you know. um, Oh, sure. Well, the problem is, I I mean, as we've seen with the
0: variety of cop discussions about the environment, it's wonderful to talk about, but nobody does anything.
1: Well, there you
0: uh, go. And and again, you could argue about uh, the reality of the UN. Uh, Again, it's great to put proposals forth, uh, but uh, unless something happens, it doesn't have uh, a whole lot of meaning. And And again, therein lies the problem. You know, it's interesting, you you were talking about the oil companies, and we did have an opportunity in the West or in the United States to create a mass transit or even, uh, uh, um, uh, and whether that's be buses or trains or whatever it was. And you look at Europe, where every city is massively connected, and most people don't drive cars, or in Amsterdam, of course, or in the Netherlands, they drive bicycles, and uh, you know, it has a profound effect. And it's, it's sad that we have been brainwashed into thinking that it's okay to drive our cars three miles to the grocery store uh, and then drive it back and not do any exercise or any of these other things. And so, again, it's, I hate to say, uh, uh, capitalism has become ruthless capitalism with little regard
1: uh, for human beings. I mean, I I totally agree with you. And that's where we fundamentally must have a shift in our consciousness. You know, it's interesting. So Xi Jinping's been getting a lot of bad press the last couple of years, right? The president of China. But I'll tell you what, he wrote a book or he commissioned a book or or something, a paper that was, uh, you know, about 60. I wrote, I read it. It was called... um, uh, the ecological civilization came out around 2013, but the ideas that were being, uh, you know, proposed and expounded on were, were quite extraordinary. You know, in terms of what is an ecological civilization, what, what does it mean to have eight billion people living in a way that uh, that is actually um, supporting the natural systems that support us? I mean, don't forget that. Three quarters of the oxygen, every, you know, three out of four breaths that you breathe come from the phytoplankton in the ocean. That's where it's from. The rest of it comes from the trees and the plants in terms of the respiration of the planet. And so the ocean is critical to this conversation. 71% of the Earth's surface is, uh, is the ocean. We showed a movie last Saturday, uh, that um, was called deep rising, and this is about the proposed deep seabed mining industry to go out down there and get the nodules that have you know these rare earth elements. But the destruction that that would create, the havoc that that would stir up—I mean, this is the remaining 71% of the planet's surface that's pretty much untouched. The bottom of the ocean—you know—we've taken the fish out of the mid layers, but down at the bottom, we haven't really done anything there yet. And so, you know, it might be wise to just, you know, leave well enough alone at this point, given what we see happening, you know, everywhere else. Um, But as my friend, uh, Paul Watson, who created the Sea Shepherd and and uh, he says, you know, if the ocean dies, we die. And he's right about that. Um, Let's go back to
0: another uh, aspect of this, which. How do we deal with the developing countries? Uh, As you know, they don't have the resources or the wealth of the first uh, world, if you will. They're burning a lot of uh, trees, uh, and they're just trying to survive in, in a very difficult situation. What contribution does that have in regard to ecological destruction, and what are the obligations of the first world, Uh, and maybe it's a selfish one, is to allow for our survival, but again, we're not even dealing with our own issues. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I mean, you know, the industrialized nations, the richest nation in the world, you know, they feel like they have the right to, you know, use the atmosphere as an open sewer, and to make as much money as possible at the expense of everybody else. And this is just the old, you know, empire colonialist, uh, you know, thinking that has um, from the ancient world that has still, you know, has its <laughs> remaining vestiges expressing itself here in the uh, 21st century, you know, in, in my opinion. And so how do we, um, you know, how do we treat the global south that's receiving, you know, the, the frontline impacts, the most severely of uh, runaway catastrophic climate change? when they've done the least to create it, you know, like these island nations in the Pacific that are literally sinking, you know? Um, I remember I had a a dinner with President Anote from uh, Kiribati uh, when I was out in Hawaii for the IUCN meeting in 2015 and he, he began weeping at the table because he said, do you know what it means to actually lose your country underwater? You know, you have to go and look for a new country somewhere, you know? It's not like you can say hey australia can we have a country over there now you know i mean and that's what they're having to do and there's other countries like that or our island nations at least but you know sea level rise is happening uh we know this and um well and there's a great and there's also a great mass migration when you talk about this as well you know in, in the form of these climate refugees that are happening um you know there's a reason why there's so many people coming north out of central and south america trying to get america and one of those reasons is that is it's very becoming very difficult to uh you know to live uh in a subsistence manner because of the um the weather patterns that have been disrupted and uh, the cycles that are out of balance so um you know we are definitely um <laughs> well i guess we're reaping what we've sown and the ones that are the wealthiest countries are the ones that are um the most responsible but we're not very good at taking responsibility for that I mean the IMF should be putting a trillion a year into this particular aspect of the solution you know um, um but it's not and we're not, so
0: well yeah I mean that that is the challenge uh, where it, it, it is sort of an interesting irony where uh, the first world the, you know two three four or five hundred years ago, Uh, destroyed their own environments, cut down trees, uh, coal mining, et cetera, et cetera. Now we're dictating to those who from a evolutionary point of view are catching up to us, but we don't want to allow them to do effectively what we did, nor are we providing then the economic support necessarily. So they don't have to do that. And again, uh, it's another Uh, challenge involving this whole situation. And I believe that unless we come together as one, and uh, that it is going to continue. Like you said, yourself and many other people, especially indigenous uh, tribes, are really sending out this message, and it's absolutely one uh, we all have to listen to. Maybe you can, uh, from your perspective, summarize if you will, uh, some of the key points uh, that are necessary to turn this around, if you wanna mind.
1: I mean, in a world of haves and have-nots, um, the haves have got to step up to the plate now. So, uh, there's only 4,000 billionaires on the planet Earth, and uh, they have, well, probably well over half of the money, I would think, and, uh, you know, I think that maybe I'm gonna do a conference in the future and we'll call it calling all billionaires. I mean, you know, look, the house is on fire, and and people are standing there looking at it, going, "Wow, look at that," you know. But they're not they're not taking action. They're not doing what's necessary to put out the fire. And uh, I, you know, you can run, but you cannot hide. You know, like some people think that, oh well, I'll just buy a, you know, an estate down in New Zealand, and you know, I'll watch, uh, you know, the whole thing go down. Uh, it's not going to work like that. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, you know,
0: it's interesting. Somebody had uh, an individual who's a futurist uh, was called by a group of billionaires and they said, you know, we're we're planning for the big uh, uh, disaster where the world's going to collapse and we're buying land like in New Zealand, et cetera, and we have mercenaries who we're hiring. And one of the questions was, well, what's going to stop the mercenaries from uh, coming after you? And, uh, (laughs) uh, 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 you know, and why wouldn't they? Uh, If everything is collapsing, I I would think you'll end up with uh, various powerful individuals who will uh, try to take control of those situations. But you're right. There is no place to hide. And and they're going to pay the price just like everyone else. It's interesting because uh, it's like dying. Uh, Somehow, there's this narrative that uh, they can uh, enjoy themselves, be extraordinarily selfish, not engage with the reality that so many people are suffering, yet they're going to die, just like all of us are going to die. And what would be a better way than to ensure the life of our planet than to uh, die uh, with your bank full of cash?
1: I mean, you know, they, you know, James, they don't make hearses with luggage racks, you know, (laughs) there's a reason for that, uh, you know, so you can't take it with you. But also, I think that, you know, that's you're getting down. We're getting down to the fundamental core premise of why, uh, why, why we're faced with these issues today. That's because, you know, we're mortal beings and we're afraid of what we don't understand and we don't understand our death and because death is part of nature, then we try to control what we don't understand. So humanity is in this control issue with nature instead of realizing that, you know, death is just another part of life and that, you know, in the great cycle of of, uh, the creation and that there's actually nothing to be afraid of. I mean, all the major and minor religions try to address this in some way or another, but the fact of the matter is that um, we continue to, you know, um, you know, pray at the altar of more is never enough, and uh, so hoarding becomes the cultural, you know, meme throughout the continuum of of humanity, whether it's communism or capitalism or whatever other isms there are out there, and there's plenty of them, you know, um, that uh, you know we um, you know we have to confront our own our own. Um, our own humanity, and I think that, you know, it really does come down to a, a change in consciousness. We're literally going to have to, you know, shift how we see it in order for us to be able to survive what we've, uh, what we've wrought on this uh, planet. Exactly,
0: and I guess on uh, that note, uh, I think um, all of us, uh, even though many of us feel we don't have a, any agency, uh, if those of us who see the future uh, come together, I think we can have a uh, dramatic change in our consciousness and uh, force those, uh, if you will, to do the right thing. And people like you, and I think uh, so many other people in the world, if we can uh, hold hands together and promote that narrative, then I think we uh, will see change. Chip, thanks for being with me today. Uh, it was an enjoyable conversation. And
1: uh, I look forward to hopefully uh, attending one of your conferences. Yes. And on that note, let me be a, a, a shameless self-plugger and uh, say that we just went through part one of uh, uh, climate, democracy, and human security, part one. And that's our day Impact at E-Town. So we have partnered with E-Town in Boulder, Colorado, a wonderful nationally syndicated radio program, and they would like for us to come back and do part two, so we're gonna do that June uh, one through three in Boulder, Colorado, and they've also suggested that we begin to curate once a month an impact film, because we do have uh, our impact film uh, division of the, uh, the AREI, in the Day summit. So we're going to be doing that, uh, once a month, bringing a, um, a film that addresses the issues that we discussed today. So, you know, come on out to Boulder. We've kind of, you know, moved down out of Aspen. Uh, we've been up there. We did 16 consecutive summits in Aspen from 2004 to 2019 before we got knocked out by the COVID. And we just came out of our forced hiatus and, uh, we had a really good meeting. Everybody was very pleased, uh, Uh, me the most, because I wasn't sure how it was going to go. But um, anyway, thanks for giving uh, me the opportunity to have this conversation with you and, you know, look forward to what the future might bring. Well, it's really been my pleasure.
0: And uh, I hope all of our uh, listeners participate uh, in that event. And uh, thanks again. Have a great day. Great. Thanks. Take care. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.